We are in a series on the Corinthian letters. We're in the second letter. Um, in this letter, Paul uh, tells them that he didn't come to see them because of the problems that were going on in the uh, congregation. He wrote them a letter instead. In that letter, he was testing their obedience. And they had passed the test and ex excommunicated a man who was engaged in public gross sin. Uh, now that the man had repented, he'd stopped that and he had come back, Paul says to them, restore him. Uh, he's suffered enough in that process. Re uh, extend fellowship to him. Restore him and maintain your unity. And he reminds them that uh, Satan would like to keep them festering over that. But God has given us triumph in Christ, even though we're inadequate of ourselves. Then he explains to them his credentials of ministry, that they really are his credentials of ministry. And more than that, they are a letter written uh, by, by Christ that's cared for by the apostles, that's written literally to be read of all men. And so that the process of their lives becomes an encouragement to others to come and follow the Lord. Um, now, he tells them that they're ministers of the New Covenant, spoken of by the prophets, which is of the Spirit and not the letter. And last week I talked a lot about that. I'm going to follow up on that a little today. The New Covenant is the same commandments. important to keep that in mind. The New Covenant doesn't change the commandments. In the first covenant, God said, here are my commandments. He wrote them on stone, and he said, put them on your heart. That was a problem. In the new covenant, he says, I will write them on your heart. I will give you a new heart, soften your heart by my spirit, and I will write these commandments on your heart. So, there's not a commandment difference between the uh, first covenant and the renewed covenant even though in replacement theology in Christianity, there's like this belief that there's, God got rid of those old uh, terrible co commandments and he's given us new commandments to love. Really? The first commandment is to love God. The second is to love your neighbor. That's all in the older one. That's not new. Okay? The only new part was where Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That unity. And the Corinthians were having trouble with that unity. Because they were dividing up over almost everything. So we're going to pick up now in uh, 2 Corinthians. And we got through uh, chapter 3. The first part last time. I want to pick up at chapter 3 verse 7. In chapter 3 verse 7. Paul says. If this ministry of death, he's talking about the first covenant, that resulted in death, even though uh, everything in the Torah was good, uh, that was engraved on stones, came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory on his face, fading as it was, how now will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more Glorious. For if the ministration of condemnation had glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For that which fades away 
with, with glory, much more that which remains is with glory. Now, Paul's making a comparison here that, re, that is referred to in the book of Hebrews about when the new covenant is mentioned in Jeremiah. The old is preparing to fade away. In replacement theology, the idea is that the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and the commandments are up until the cross and then at the cross, those are all done away with and a new set is put in place. That is not biblically correct. It's, it's very Christian, but it's not biblical. The biblical model is that the first covenant is in place remains in place, Jesus said, until heaven and earth passes away, not not one jot or tittle of the Torah will pass until it's all brought into full operation. So, at the cross, what happened was, (laughs) the thing that was causing the problem with the first covenant was dealt with. And that was flesh and sin. What the law could not do, weak through the flesh, God did in sending His Son, condemning sin in the flesh, so that we may meet the requirements of the law who walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh. So Paul's argument is not, we found a new uh, um, set of commandments to follow. He says, we couldn't follow those commandments because our flesh rises up against us. But we are now being changed and in that changing we become more and more capable, not fully capable, but more and more capable awaiting the resurrection when we will be fully capable and in the kingdom to come all of the commandments will be in full operation. And as I said last week, if you don't like the commandments of God, you're going to hate the kingdom of God. Because they're the rules of the kingdom of God. And then, after he does that, we will have a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. So it's really important to understand that you and I live in a time when the Torah covenant with Israel is in full uh, uh, operation in the sense that it's still a valid covenant and will not change until this heaven and this earth passes away. But at the cross and the giving of the Spirit, a new um, additional framework came into play that is uh, by means of the Spirit, not just the letter, which gives us an understanding towards the time when at the resurrection we will be able to fulfill God's will and His purpose uh, completely. Now, Paul's going to try to explain that in the in the second parts of these verses, and he's going to do it by talking about a story that took place in um, the uh, giving of the first commandments, uh, of the first covenant. So he says in um, uh, this passage that uh, there is a glory of the old and a glory of the new. He's also going to talk about Moses and his face shining and the glory in that sense. So in order to get that clear in our minds, I want to go back into Exodus chapter 34 and look exactly at what he is going to be talking about. 
Because if we miss that, then we will interpret it incorrectly. So in Exodus chapter 34, beginning at verse 27, the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights, and he did not eat bread or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, which we have represented in our ark. So the covenant is represented by the tablets written in the letters of the commandments. That's why Paul's talking about the letter versus the spirit. Now, he goes on and says, It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hands as he was coming down the mountain. And Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with God. Now what's happening is, Moses was in the very presence of God and his Shekinah, his Shekinah glory, however you want to refer to that. And the glory of the Lord... And the presence of the Lord was illuminating and in some sense uh, transforming Moses' own face. Uh, if you remember reading in the, in the Gospels the transfiguration of Jesus when all of a sudden His glory is shown and He glows and He's bright and the glory of God is, is bright the, uh, and, and Moses and Elijah show up. It's that kind of thing. And sitting in the presence of that for 40 days and 40 nights, you get kind of a, uh, what we could call a uh, uh, Shekinah suntan. Okay? In other words, you, you, you have that. We, we stay out in the sun and we get bright and red. Moses is transfigured in a sense by the glory of God. Now Moses doesn't know that because he doesn't have a mirror, right? And he didn't do a selfie up on the mountain with the commandments, right? So he comes down, as far as he knows, he looks the same as he always does. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. Now remember, when they had seen the glory of God up on the mountain, they said, Moses, you go up and talk to him. So now Moses is coming down and he's got that glory all around him and they're afraid to get near him. And Moses called to them and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the sons of Israel came near and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. And whenever he went in before the Lord, that is, into the tabernacle, uh, to speak with the Lord, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of men, uh, what was uh, commanded. And the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. Now, here's what Moses is doing. When he is in the presence of the Lord, the glory of the Lord reflects on him. 
But when he comes out, as time goes on, that glory begins to fade. So what Moses does is he comes into the to presence of God in the glory, unveiled. He comes out, speaks God's words to the people where they see the glory of God on his face. Then he covers his face so that they don't notice this thing is fading. He goes back in. He gets the glory again. He speaks the word of God. It's fading. He covers his face. Okay? Paul's going to make use of that to explain something that's critical in understanding the difference between the letter and the spirit. Okay? So go back to 2 Corinthians and we'll uh, pick that up. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 then, what Paul says is, Now this glory of this new covenant that we're ministers of is a greater glory than the glory that Moses had uh, when he had his face covered back and forth. Right? He says, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. And we are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face, so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. They would see the glory going away. They saw the glory in its fullness, and then he'd cover it. They didn't see the fading, then that kind of thing. So Moses did that. Paul says, we're not doing that. Because the glory of this one is so glorious that you can't even see the glory of the other one in context. That's what he's been saying. So he says these words. Um, Our message has such great hope that we have such boldness that we're not doing what Moses did. Talking about it, then going away, it's it's passing away, it's passing away. We are bold to talk about it all the time. So in that context, he moves on in verse 14. But their minds, he's talking about the Israelites when Moses was talking to them, were hardened. The mind and the heart in Hebrew is the same thing. Their, their hearts were hardened. Their minds were hardened. The, uh, the prophets always talked about being hardened of heart and dull of mind. Those are two descriptions of the same thing. This inability to comprehend what God wants and to do it because of your own flesh and lust and problems, what we call sin. He says, their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. Not the Torah, not the covenant, the veil. This problem that prevents you from seeing the glory. So he says, To this day, whenever Moses is read, and Moses is read in every synagogue, every Sabbath, uh, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now I want to look at uh, this verses uh, 13 and 14. He claims that their heart, or their mind, of Israel was hardened. We see that all through the prophets. Uh, Got to be careful that we don't become anti-Semitic on this. 
we're, we don't even, we don't even have that access. We were far away, they were near, and they had the problem. We can't think that we wouldn't have the problem if we weren't near. Okay? I always have people say, well, look at Israel. They were a, they were a disaster. And I say, have you read church history? You know? It's a human problem. And God is using Israel to explain to us that problem. He's not using them because they're worse than us. He's using them so that he can demonstrate that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's what he's saying. And so the natural condition of Israel and of all humanity is a hardened heart and mind towards God. And even the glory of the scriptures cannot penetrate the heart of Israel or the Gentiles. Now when Paul is writing, the only biblical text that we have that was present is the Torah and the prophets and the writings. There are no gospels. These letters that we're reading are just being written. So don't confuse Old Covenant, New Covenant with Old Testament, New Testament. The New Testament is being written. The Old Testament is what he's talking about. When it is read, there is a veil over their heart and mind. And I don't think he's only talking about Israel. I believe that's true in general. And I think Paul believes that. And I'm going to tell you how I believe that in a a second. But the idea is that the natural condition of reading the scriptures is that we read the letters of the scriptures. We try to understand them. Our mind is darkened. Our flesh is weak. And we cannot understand really what God is saying. And the glory of what these words mean is not present to us. Now, where did I get that? Well, I got that from Paul. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians. Because in, uh, in verse 16 he says, Whenever someone turns to the Lord, that veil is removed. So what is he talking about? 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll start at verse 9. The whole chapter is important, but I don't have time, right? As it is written... Things which the eye has seen and the ear has heard, which has not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for him to those who love him. Now he's just said they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory if they'd have known what was going on. And he says that, that eyes don't see this, ears don't see this, this doesn't even enter our imagination what the Lord is doing. For to us... God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received... Not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. 
which things we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those things taught by the Spirit, comparing spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now I want you to catch this. This is critical. When I discovered this, it altered my spiritual life. I have, I have always thought, it's just the scripture. If you just give people the scripture, they'll, they'll figure it out. It's not true. They will figure something out, but it will often be foolishness. The natural man looks at the Word of God, tries to understand it from a human context, and the result is either something he can't stand or something that accommodates him, and in the accommodation, it's a false understanding. The difference is the Spirit of God, not the letter of the Word. Now, the danger is to think that the Spirit replaces the Word. No, the Spirit and the Word go together. The Word without the Spirit leads men to foolishness. And the Spirit without the Word leads men into chaos. Because every random thought that comes to their mind, and every bizarre notion they think is coming from God, and they follow Themself thinking it's God. These things have to go together. And Paul's argument is, the letter alone killeth, but the Spirit with that word makes alive. Now I want you to think about this. You read a letter from somebody whom you do not know. You don't know them at all you will generally understand what they're saying, but you won't catch things because you don't know them and you won't know what they're referring to. When we have the Spirit of God, I'm not talking about us individually, I'm talking about us communally. The Spirit of God within us quickens us to help us understand what God is saying. So that we, because we know Him by means of His Spirit, we are able to discern what he's saying in the scriptures and not fall into that foolishness. So, two dangers. Word only. Spirit only. Okay? The truth is, we need them both. Electricity works when the positive and the negative are both in operation. Right? Uh, the idea is that the spirit who inspired this text must illuminate our hearts and soften our hearts and write these things upon our hearts so that we can get the scriptures into us. Not so that we can avoid the scriptures and follow the Spirit, but so that we can, with Spirit and Word together, bring this stuff um, uh, into play. So, the natural man can't do that. 
And the spiritual zombie can't do that. I don't know what to call that person. Uh, but we all know people like that. And what any weird thought comes into their head is God talking to them. All right? uh, there's a, it's very difficult these days to know people who have mental illness who talk in God talk. And people who claim to be believers who talk in God talk. Because both of them are nonsense compared to the biblical text. But they're using words and phrases from the biblical text. But they clearly don't understand what those things mean. So that's what Paul's talking about here. So now what I want to do is go back to 2 Corinthians. And look at verse 17. 3.17. He says, when a person, verse 16, turns to the Lord. What happens when we turn to the Lord? When we cry, when we, when we believe in God, God places His Spirit in us, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We are born again in our spirit. We are now transforming our mind with the Spirit and the Word together to grow in grace and in knowledge. That process, when we turn to the Lord in that sense, we are given the Spirit of God. And so he says... Um, When the person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. That blindness is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So, the Spirit of God provides us freedom. That freedom is freedom from sin, not freedom from the commandments. The Spirit begins to help us because if we walk after the Spirit, now understand walking after the Spirit means the understanding that the Spirit gives us of the Word, rather than the flesh, which gives us a different understanding of the Word. Those who walk in the flesh and the Word will of the flesh reap corruption And the works of the flesh are manifest. And Paul lists them. But the one who follows the Spirit will be empowered through life to approximate in in greater and greater steps towards obedience. Not full obedience. We all know that. But but we, we forget those things which are behind and press towards the high calling of God in Christ. And in that context... The Spirit provides a liberty, and that liberty is a liberty from self and sin, not a liberty from commandment and covenant. Romans chapter 6. I'm letting Paul explain Paul, because I don't want to be accused of this being Bruce explaining Paul. In Romans 6, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as a slave for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or obedience resulting in righteousness. I want to catch. I want you to catch some. If you are a slave to your flesh, where's that going to lead you? Death, sin, and death. 
if you are a slave to God, you are going to follow the Spirit who is going to instruct you in the words appropriately so that you walk towards life. You're going to be a slave in one sense, either way. John MacArthur is uh, constantly trying to get us with the NASB to get rid of the word bondservant and just use the word slave. And his argument is good, but American English and American history, the word slave has all kinds of connotations in that framework. Uh, there is, and that's why he says, the one that you present yourself as a servant. There was a subtle, there's two kinds of slavery. There's a slavery where you are kidnapped, taken against your will. And there is a indentured servant, if you will, a bond slave, where you submit yourself to someone to be their servant. God took Israel, who had become kidnapped in slavery to Egypt, and redeemed them, making them free, that they could submit themselves as bondservants of the Lord, slaves of the Lord. But that's an act of obedience. Those are different. Those are subtle differences. But they're differences nonetheless. And Paul is saying, you were a slave to sin through your flesh, God's grace has appeared to redeem you and make you free from the law of sin and death which is in your flesh. Now render yourselves servants of righteousness. Slaves of God. To do the right thing. Fighting your flesh. Denying the flesh. Dying to the flesh. And alive to the spirit. Not to get rid of the commandments, but to get us in the direction of the commandments, awaiting the day when the body is fully capable of doing that. And so he says, in this verse, But thanks be to God, though you were slaves of sin, verse 17, you became obedient from the heart, that's a heart that's not hardened, it's softened by the Spirit, to that form of teaching to which you were commanded. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. <clears throat> now he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity, to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present yourselves members as slaves to righteousness, Resulting in sanctification, holiness. Righteousness and holiness. That's the direction we are to walk in. And the Spirit teaches us that. And the Spirit helps us in that process. Now, in order to understand this just a little bit more. <clears throat> in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. Paul then gives us another subtle example about the progression of this. He says, so, for all intents and purposes, those of us who have been freed from sin and the flesh have received the Spirit of God so that the veil has been removed. We all, with unveiled face, behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Where? In the Scriptures. That's what James says. When a person looks at the word of truth 
and sees his face. He forgets what manner of man he was. Right? We look at it. We see what person we were. We see what person we are becoming. And we strive towards what we are becoming and not what we were. We behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image. From glory to glory. Just as from the Lord the Spirit. Now, got to go back to Romans to get this unpacked by Paul. And that's what Romans 8 is all about. We're only going to look at a few verses because I can't read the whole thing, but you've been through Romans 8 enough that you will know what I'm doing. (coughs) So in Romans 8, he begins by walking with the Spirit in verses 1 through 4. There is now therefore no condemnation, freedom, right? For those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. He's not talking about the Torah. He's talking about the law of sin and death that was in your flesh. And now the law that is coming from the Spirit that will help you to discern this correctly. So for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, and He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, He's going to talk about this flesh-spirit thing. I've already talked about it, so I'm going to move on to other verses. I want to pick it up at verse 12. We have been freed from the law of sin and death in our flesh. That we can follow the Spirit. So in verse 12 he says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's self-denial. If any man follow me, let him Deny himself, take up his cross, crucify the old man, and follow me. This is not a belief system. It's a life behavioral system based on trusting God and His Word. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery again leading to fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And what does a child want to do? They want to please their father. They struggle to be like their daddy. Okay? Particularly when they have a benevolent daddy. The spirit himself testifying with our spirits that we are the children of God. And if children we are heirs... And heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, who's our elder brother, if we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified with him. In this life will be the suffering. In the next life will be the glory. A lot of Christians trying to get the glory now. The suffering is in this life. The glory is in the next. Paul's got that theme constantly in all his letters. Then he says these 
sufferings aren't worthy to be compared. Not going to go there because that's a whole sermon. Pick it up in verse 26. Remember, we've been given the Spirit of God. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. We do not know how we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows the mind of the Spirit, and he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. I want you to catch it. Remember Paul said, being changed into the same image. Same image. What image is he talking about? Those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he's glorifying. See the process? So the idea here is that we were created in the image of God. That image is marred by sin. And we are being recreated, a new creation... In His Son, so that we will be conformed to His image in the kingdom to come as our elder brother and high priest and king. And we will be in full glory with Him in that context. Paul says it's a faithful statement. If we suffer with Him, we will be glorified with Him. Man, that's something to be doing. Okay? But we get... Tied up into this life and into this world and into the mundane things. And forget what manner of creature we have become. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, it's interesting. If we took that verse as literal as we take the other replacement, then all of a sudden, I'm already fully righteous and holy. And any of you who know me know that ain't the case. So the Bible is talking about where I was and where I will be. And I'm on the path between those. And I do that by following the Spirit, reading the Word. And struggling to be a doer of the Word, not a hearer only. And in that context, the Spirit is helping me to go forward in that process, even though there's suffering, because the suffering is not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in it. And so Paul can say, I'm not there yet. Paul can say, I rejoice in suffering. Because I know that that's bringing a far greater weight of glory in the kingdom to come. Now I believe that here. Between these years, I believe that. I'm working on the becoming convinced of it. But in the last several months, I've become more convinced of it as I've struggled with our own suffering and the idea of what is God doing. He's not punishing. He's refining. He's not rejecting. He's approving. He's not abandoning. He is walking alongside with underneath being the everlasting arms. He is our rock and He is our shield. And He will be 
our salvation. So, that's the path that we've chosen. It's the path of life. It smells like death to those who don't have the Spirit. It is a way of sorrows. It is a way of suffering. But it leads towards resurrection and glory. And Paul's now going to explain this process as not being seen by the natural man because he looks at what's seen. And we're not going to look at what's seen, but the unseen because the seen is temporal and the unseen is eternal, which is his next passage. We'll do that next time. Let's pray.